The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Happy Mother's Day for all of you moms out there, and I'm excited that many of you chose to come and worship with us here on this day. We're in Colossians chapter number one for our Bible study here today. Colossians chapter number one. Uh, before we dive into this, I got to tell you kind of a funny thing that happened to me yesterday. Um, I had a quick errand I had to run last night, uh, just quick over to Target. I had to grab something for the house real quick. And so I ran over to Target. I was in there, grabbed what I needed to grab, and I was getting ready to go and check out. And on my way to uh, check out, I passed an aisle, and on the end of the aisle, they had a sale on scales, you know, where you go, bathroom scale, you put in your bathroom and you weigh yourself. Uh, A couple of months ago, our bathroom scale had broken. It gave up the ghost. It's no no good. And so I see these scales on sale. I thought, oh, there's a chance. Ours is broken. I need a scale. I'll grab one. So I grabbed it. Didn't think much of it. Took it up. Checked it out. uh, Grabbed it. Got, drove home real quick. Got home and uh, just kind of threw it uh, in our bedroom and didn't think much about it. Until a few moments later when my wife walked in the room and said, uh, honey, is, uh, is this my Mother's Day gift? You know? And it was in that moment it just like hit me. I'm like, oh, this does not look good at all, does it? You know? I'm thinking, so, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I'll say this. Guys, if you ever have to buy a bathroom scale, uh, try to avoid times, you know, around anniversaries, around birthdays, and possibly Mother's Day might be another good time uh, not to buy a scale. And so because of that, of course, me and my kids, we had to go out. And now we had to, we had to go find a gift for moms, you know. And so we drove over to River Park, and there's a place there called, uh, what's it called? Home Goods. How many of you ladies know about Home Goods? And I figured, okay, this, there's got to be something here we can buy for moms. Uh, apparently, every other man in Fresno had the exact same idea. Uh, typically, when you go to Home Goods, it's just filled with ladies running around looking at knickknacks and things like that. Not yesterday. Yesterday, it was a bunch of guys wandering around like, what are we doing and where do we go? And so we're, we're there. I'm there with Ashlyn and Anderson, and we're you know, trying to find a gift there. And in the distance, it's so funny, I see this little kid and this dad. And this kid's probably nine years old, and he's over there at Home Goods. And he's trying, he's like, he's like convinced he found the perfect gift for his mom. And he's trying to convince his dad, we got to get, we got to get this for mom. <laughs> you say, what was it? it? No joke. It was literally, my, my kids can tell you, it was a, it was a, a suit of armor for like a knight, like a bronze suit of armor. And he's telling, he's like, dad, mom's going to love this. She, she, this is exactly what she wants. And dad's kind of like trying not to be mean because he's kind of one of these more laid back type dads, you know, and he's kind of like, well, son, you know, maybe let's keep looking around and things. And I just was cracking up, and we were cracking up about it. And so we, we buy what we got for Jenny, and then we were on our way out. No joke, as we were walking out, the kids, we noticed this little nine-year-old, and he's carrying this suit of armor out. And I'm thinking, some poor mom this morning woke up to a suit of armor, you know? And so if that was one of you, I'm sure it was beautiful and, and great and everything. And, and uh, I, hope, I hope she enjoyed it. My mom taught me so much about life, and I know for maybe some, some of you, you're in the same boat. Mom just really taught you a lot about life and, and uh, just different things. And, and uh, one of the things that my mom was, was so good at was she would often just teach us about thankfulness and gratitude. Uh, my mom was one of these, anytime somebody gave us something or anytime, you know, something special happened, she would always ask us, hey, write them a thank you note and just tell them you appreciate, you know, what they did. It was one occasion, I was probably about 12 years old at the time, and as a 12-year-old, we were invited out to eat by an elderly couple in the church. 
And so we went out to eat, and because I was, I was right on that line where I'm still, you know, you're 12 years old, and I was not really, you know, you're not a teenager, but you're not feeling like a little kid. You're kind of in that awkward stage. And when we get to this restaurant, and, and this elderly couple that I'm sure was late 70s, early 80s, they decided they were just going to order for everybody. And so they ordered, real, I think, a steak for my mom and dad and things. And then for all the kids, they ordered um, their kids' meal. And at this particular restaurant, the, the name of the kids' meal was called the, the Pixie Meal. It was the Pixie Meal. And so they ordered two steaks for mom and dad. And then all of us kids, we got the Pixie Meal. And I'm telling you, when we got the Pixie Meal, it, it was just that. It was a Pixie Meal. Like, it was like two bites of food. And as a 12-year-old, I wasn't going to have anything to do with that. I mean, this is like, I mean, like, literally within, like, 30 seconds of them bringing us out the food, we had gobbled it down, and we were standing right next to our mom. Mom, is there any more food? Of course, she's embarrassed because these people have paid for it and all this kind of stuff. And I'm Pixie Meal. And I was, it was so, I know for her, she was so embarrassed because she's trying not to offend this couple, you know, who paid for this food. And we're starving and probably not behaving super well. And I remember just being so frustrated and so upset as a 12-year-old. I got two bites of a pixie meal, you know, when we went out to eat. And I remember getting home, and my mom made me write a thank you note to this family for buying me a pixie meal. I remember, I'd never been so frustrated in my life having to write a thank you note or something I didn't even want in the first place. But that was mom. She was always trying to teach us something about gratitude and, and thanksgiving. And, and really, gratitude is such an important aspect to experiencing happiness, as we're going to see in this passage today in Colossians chapter number one. Our theme for the message this morning is simply this. It's not that being happy makes people more grateful. That, that's what we tend to think. We tend to think that people who are happy, people who are, have joy, those are the people who are thankful, those are the people who are full of gratitude. But as we see in sociology, as well as in theology, in the word of God, that's not actually how it works. It's not that happy people and joyful people are thankful people. It's actually the other way around. It shows we're finding now that people who are grateful and people who are thankful and people who just have a spirit of always looking for what to be thankful for and what to be grateful for, it's actually that that quality produces happiness. So it's not being happy that makes people more grateful, but rather that being grateful makes people happy. So today, we're going to look at what cultivates this gratitude, what cultivates thanksgiving, and as a byproduct, what cultivates happiness and joy as well. We're going to dive into our text here in a moment. Colossians chapter number one is where we're at. Over the last few weeks, we have been doing a Bible study through the book of Colossians. This is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church in Colossae. was the name of the ancient city. There was a church there, and the Apostle Paul writes them a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to try to encourage them, to try to be a help to them in light of some of the things that they were facing as a church. And so we've been going verse by verse through this passage and in a series that we've just called Secrets to a Satisfied Life, because in chapters number one and chapters number two, we find that Jesus is shown to be a satisfying and sufficient Savior in these two chapters. Uh, two weeks ago, in verses number one through verses number seven, we see where Paul compliments the church at Colossae. He spends like these verses just complimenting them and praising them, and it's really just his heart of gratitude uh, for them as a church and them as a people. Uh, last week, Pastor Nick preached from verses number 8 to verses number 14, where we saw Paul then praise for the church at Colossae. He prays that they would grow. 
uh, that they would develop, that they would uh, become everything that God intends for them to come. And now we find ourselves in verses number 15 through verses number 20. And, and what's really interesting about these few verses is right here in chapter number one, the Apostle Paul is going to break out into a season of praise. Like you're going to see in these verses as we read them in just a moment, the Apostle Paul is just going to praise Jesus. He's just going to just worship him and thank God for everything that Jesus Christ is and everything that he has done. And it's just this, this exciting time of worship and praise. And so we're going to read through our text here in just a moment. Uh, before we get started, if you're visiting with us today, we're really glad to have you as our guest on this Mother's Day. Uh, on your way in, you should have received a guest booklet. In fact, on the inside of it, there's a little thing we call a connection card. And I just want to encourage you to fill that out sometime during the service. We would love to have a record of your attendance. And in fact, we'll put some stuff in the mail and give you a little bit more information about the ministries here and some of the programs that we offer. And so hopefully that'll be a help to you. Uh, the rest of you should have received a service guide. Uh, inside the service guide, there is a Bible study outline that you can use as we're just going to study these verses here today and find out what the scriptures have to say. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what I say or what a denomination or religion has to say. We, we want to know what God has to say. So we're just going to go right to the word and let the word speak for itself. Uh, for those of you who are physically able, let's stand as we read from our text today. We're going to start in verse number 15. We will read down through verse number 20. The Bible says in the book of Colossians, chapter number 1, verse number 15, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now, the context of this passage is Jesus Christ. Verse 16, For by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, Jesus, and for him. That's, that's important. Notice that. The Bible says in verse 17, and Jesus is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. What, what body is it talking about? The, the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things Jesus might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." Last week, we saw how Christ was enough for our growth. And this week, we're going to look at the subject that Christ is enough for our gratitude and praise. Christ is enough for our gratitude and praise. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity that we can gather together as your people. Lord, we have such a great God that we can worship and we can adore. And I pray that this service would truly be all about you. Lord, I thank you for the early 930 service and the great group that you gave us and the opportunity that we had to worship you and praise you. And I pray that you would bless us again here in this 11 o'clock service. I pray that we would sense your spirit and that our hearts would develop, Lord, in gratitude and praise toward all that you are. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. We're going to dive right in today. Notice in verse number 15, the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Notice this, the firstborn of every creature. 
If you skip down to verse number 19, it says, For it pleased the Father, God the Father, that in Jesus should all fullness dwell. And so from these two verses, we're going to see the first declaration made about Jesus Christ. And that is simply this. The Bible teaches us here that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. Notice what it says in verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God. You see, this verse and many other verses all throughout the scriptures teach that Jesus was more than just a good man. He was more than just a good teacher. He was more than just an individual who, you know, taught some philosophy. The Bible teaches us in this passage and in many other passages that Jesus is God. 1 John chapter number 5 verse 20 talks about this where it says, And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. That's interesting. The Son of God was given so we might know him who who is true. That we might know more about God. And we are in him who is true. In his Son. Notice this. Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So according to this passage and many other passages found throughout the word of God. We see again and again and again that is made that Jesus is God. In fact, uh, one theologian said it this way. He said, Jesus Christ really is God's autobiography. Jesus Christ is God's autobiography. How do we find out more about this invisible God? This God who is a spirit. How do we know this God? How do we relate to this God? Well, the reality is we can know and experience God through his son, Jesus Christ, who is indeed God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is equal with God. But not only do we see that Jesus Christ is God in verse number 15, notice what it says in verse number 16. It says, for by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Okay, anything in the universe, anything here on the globe, the Bible says was created by Jesus. Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Not only do we see in verses number 16 that everything was created by him, notice now verse 17, And he is before all things, and by him, Jesus Christ, all things consist. So in verses number 15, we see that Jesus Christ is God. In verses number 16 and verses number 17, we see that Jesus Christ is creator. Jesus Christ is the creator. Man, some people will step back and say, how is that even possible? Because the Bible says that Jesus existed before time. It was God being manifest in the flesh. The Gospel of John reemphasizes this in John chapter number 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word. That word, Word, with a capital W in the Greek is the word Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. Notice this. And the Logos was God. So whoever this Word was, whoever this Logos was, was God. It goes on to say in verse 14, and the Logos was made flesh. This word, this God, this logos was made flesh, and notice this, and dwelt among us. 
God became a man and dwelt among us. The Bible says we as humanity begin to behold his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and for him. And without him was not anything that was made. All things were made by him. I want you to see today that the one who creates all things has the authority control all things he's in charge why what what gives jesus the right to reign supreme in our lives because he created all that there is he created the heavens he created the universe he created the cosmos he created the globe he created the earth and the animals he created humanity he created you and he created me he is creator he is sustainer we see that we see that jesus christ is god in verse 15 in verses number 16 we see that god is creator in verses number 17 we see that god is sustainer he says and by him all things consist do you realize that if jesus christ were to remove himself from the equation in this galaxy that it all would just fall apart because not only did he create everything that he that there is he sustains everything that there is now notice verse number 18 the bible says in 18 it says and jesus is the head of the body the church what body is being talked about talk about the body of the church it says here who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead he was the first one to resurrect from the dead meaning there will be others who resurrect from the dead and so we'll talk about that a little bit later that in all things jesus might have the preeminence you see jesus christ wants to be more than just prominent in our lives this is a, a church service Many of you have been to church before, and the reality is many of you allow Jesus to be prominent in your life, and it's easy to some degree to allow God to be prominent in our lives. He's prominent in many of our schedules. He's prominent in our budgets. He's prominent in our decisions. He's prominent in many aspects of our lives, but that's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is not saying that Jesus Christ should be prominent. It's saying that he might be preeminent that he's in charge, in control over all of our lives, over all of our schedules, over all of our budgets, over all of our decisions. He is preeminent. Now, here's the reality. You and I have to surrender to that. We are either going to align with his sovereignty, we're going to align with his reign, or we're going to buck against it and experience the consequences that come along with bucking against the authority of the God and sustainer, creator of the universe, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So we see in verse 15, Jesus Christ is God. 16, Jesus Christ is creator. 17, Jesus Christ is sustainer. We see in verses number 18, Jesus Christ is in control of everything. Of everything, verse 18. It says, in all things that he might have the preeminence. There is nothing in the cosmos, there's nothing in the universe, there's nothing in the world where Jesus Christ doesn't reign and say, mine. He reigns. He's in charge. He's in control. And, and I know, depending on your view of church and religion, for a lot of us, that makes us cringe. Oh, man, nobody's going to be in charge of me. Nobody's going to be in control. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And yet, for us as believers, this is actually a comforting truth. That the God who is the creator, that the God who is sustainer, that God is in control of our lives, and we can trust him. 
We can rest in all that he makes possible. We can know that regardless of what we're going through, Jesus is in control. Matthew chapter number 28 is another passage that reemphasizes this. It says that Jesus came and spoke unto them. The them in that passage is the disciples. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and in earth. Why? Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge. Here's what's interesting about this. God is so omnipotent, he's so powerful, he's so awesome and so glorious that God is almost always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be aware of two or three of them. (laughs) This reality of who God is is to stir our hearts to say, wow, that Jesus is God. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's in control. And that is to bring our hearts comfort and peace and serenity. Why? Knowing that this God loves us. He cares about us, and he wants what's best for us. Let's keep reading. Notice verse 20. The Bible says in verse 20, and then having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. So what the Bible is saying here in verses number 20 is that Jesus came to this earth to make peace with humanity. See, the Bible teaches that because of your sin and because of my sin, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, because of our choice to say, I'm going to live life as I want to, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to go where I want, I'm going to say what I want, I'm going to live my life my way. There's a spirit of rebellion there that now has separated us from the very spirit of God. And we become his enemies because we go against his perfect plan. You see, God is not up in heaven trying to control your life and suck all the fun out of it. He's trying to give you guidance so that you can live a life of human flourishing. So you can live life with peace and joy and love the way that God designed and created the universe to work. And so he gives us his law so we can align with the way he says life is supposed to go. And he then says, when those rebel against that, there's no peace. And so what happened is God sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life as God. And then went to a cross and died. Why? To take the punishment, the consequences, and condemnation of all of your rebellion and all of your sin. And he took all the consequences of that upon himself and literally suffered and died in our place Why? So he could make peace with us. So he could reconcile, so he could bring us together with God because in and of our own self, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, to earn his salvation. It's only of him. Acts chapter number 16, verse 31 continues this when it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Saved saved from the eternal consequences of our sin, saved from a life of purposelessness and pointlessness, to be saved from everything that the enemy is trying to destroy, everything that the enemy is trying to do in our life, saved from those realities. You see, when we experience salvation, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given the promise of eternal life in heaven and the promise of abundant life here on earth. 
That's what God makes available. But I'll say this. Salvation is not a goal to be achieved. You see, many religious traditions will lead you to believe that there is these things you must do in order to achieve salvation. You've got to behave this way. You've got to do these things. You've got to go to that church. You've got to join this denomination. You've got to say these prayers. You've got to act that way and talk this way. They teach a theology, a doctrine that salvation is a goal to be achieved. And one day you're going to get to heaven and God's going to have this cosmic scale. And on this scale, all your good works and bad works will be weighed out. And if your good outweighs your bad, then maybe you'll make it into heaven. But I'm here to say that salvation is not a goal to be achieved but rather it is a gift to be received by faith to be received by simply placing your faith and trust and saying God you're enough you're enough for my salvation and I rest I put my dependence I put my hope I put my faith in what you did what you finished on my behalf and that is how you receive salvation So we see in verse 15, Jesus Christ is God. We see in verse number 16 here that Jesus Christ is creator. We see in verse 17, God is sustainer. We see here verse number 18 that God is in control. And in verses number 20, we see that God is the savior of the world. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. One poet wrote it this way. He said, the greatest man in history had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet conquered the world through his love. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, yet he still lives today. That's your king. That's your savior. That is Jesus. So here we see in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church at Colossae, and as he is writing, he is just praising God's name. He is talking about all that Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is sustainer. Jesus is in control. Jesus is savior. And he's just preaching the good news of the gospel of all that Jesus Christ is, and he's cultivating through this what only the gospel can accomplish. Can I say this? If you and I as believers, if we will fix our attention and fix our focus on the reality of all that Jesus is, it starts to do something in our soul. When we fix our heart on Jesus and all that he is, it starts to develop and cultivate a spirit of peace. It starts to cultivate a spirit or a sense of security. When we really believe that Jesus is in control of all the circumstances of our life, guess what? It makes it so we can breathe a little bit better. Because even when things are going bad and even when things are not going the way they should go, we know that he is ultimately in control. And it gives us security. It gives this peace. It gives this confidence. Why? Because we're looking at our circumstances? No, but because we're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And this is who he is. He is a God who's taking care of everything. And that, my friend, is what becomes the foundation for our gratitude. 
not our circumstances being better, not the situation in our life being better, but the fact that he is in control, that he is God, and we can trust him. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this passage. Here, Paul is just admiring all the essence of everything that Jesus is. Do you know what's fascinating about this passage? Is everything that the Apostle Paul is writing to that church in Colossae, he's writing as a prisoner in Rome. So as he is declaring the greatness of his God, he's doing it as a prisoner. That is to say, his circumstances weren't the way he wanted them to be. Things weren't going exactly how he thought maybe they should go. His life was not all super duper dandy at this point in his life. He is a prisoner in Rome, and yet in this context, he continues to point people's attention. He continues to focus his attention on the Savior, on Jesus. So Paul, as a prisoner in Rome, this this reality, if if you read these verses through that lens, and you read all that's being said here, here he is, praising Jesus. He's thanking Jesus, allowing his heart to be filled with gratitude for all that Jesus is, and yet all of it is being done as a prisoner. It helps us a little bit to unpack some practical principles from this passage that I think you and I can, can can walk away with as we wrap up this sermon. So let me give you a couple of things. If you want to jot these down, jot them down. Number one, I want you to see first of all here, all of what Paul is saying as a prisoner We see here he's continually reflecting on God's ability rather than his own inability. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. He could have wrote to the church at Colossae, oh my, you know, I I can't get out of prison and I I don't know how to make this, fix this and all that. But he's not in this passage, he's not focusing on all his inabilities. He's not focusing on everything he can't do. He's focusing on God's ability. He's focusing, man, Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is sustainer. Jesus is in control. You got to understand, he is saying that in the context of being in prison. He's reflecting on God's abilities rather than focusing on his inabilities. And I'd encourage us to do the same. You see, we tend to forget that happiness doesn't come as a result of getting everything, getting something we don't have. But rather, it comes by recognizing and appreciating what we do have. And Paul recognized, I might be in prison. I might be in chains. The circumstances of my life might not be great. The situation in my life might not be great. But my God is great. His character and his essence is awesome. And I choose to focus and fix my heart on that. Continually reflect on God's ability. Here's another takeaway. Regularly focus on the positive of Christ's promises rather than the negatives of your circumstances. Here's Paul. He's in prison. And rather than just, you know, go on and on and focusing on all the negatives that are happening in his life, all the suffering and focusing on all everything that's going wrong and focusing about being in prison, he's just turning people's focus to to Christ, to all that he is and all that he promises. And yet this is so hard to do, isn't it? I mean, let's just, let's just be real for a moment. When, when you're going through negative circumstances in your life, where does your focus tend to, tend to go? It's so much easier to focus on the negatives than focus on the positive all that Christ is. Any of you struggle with this like me? 
Isn't it crazy how just easy it is just to focus on the negatives? It's like human nature, and yet here Paul is just going to, he's just continuing to fix his focus and attention on Christ. You see, the secret of happiness is to count your blessings while others are adding up their troubles. Fix your eyes on Christ. Number three, practical takeaway as we, as we focus on all that Christ is in light of what Paul was even going through in prison. Number three, fully experience all of God's grace by faith rather than wallowing in self-pity. You know what I love is here in this passage, the Apostle Paul here is just, he's just, you can tell by everything he's saying, everything he's writing, you can tell by the spirit of this context, you can tell that he is just really enjoying and experiencing a very real grace. He's experiencing strength, he's experiencing joy, even as a prisoner in Rome. I don't know about you, but it's so easy just to kind of wallow in self-pity, isn't it? Well, well, poor poor me. I don't got the job I want. Man, I don't have the the spouse I want. I don't have the education I want or the money I want. The list goes on and on and on and on. And all of us have things that we can wallow in self-pity about. But But the example we have here is, hey, we can experience God's grace by faith. By simply believing that that grace is available to us, we can enjoy it, we can experience it, we can sense it, we can bask in it, and it's available to us. Christian, God is constantly pouring grace upon grace upon grace to you. And it might not be in the form you want, but it's always available to you if you'll choose to receive it by faith. Grace is always available. Strength is always available. Comfort that comes in the Spirit is always available if you will simply believe that it is yours by divine birthright. By faith. Believe that what Christ has made available, you can experience by faith today. Grace is yours. And that's what we see Paul doing He's basking and experiencing and enjoying the grace made available to him rather than just wallowing in self-pity. Lastly, frequently articulate your gratitude and praise rather than just complaining about everything. You know what I love about this passage? Here's the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. It won't be long before he gets sentenced to die He'll be beheaded. He'll be with Jesus in heaven. I mean, that's, that's what his physical circumstances are looking like. And yet here in this passage, we don't see him. I'm not complaining about this, and my life's so horrible, and I, I'm just serving Jesus and just doing what Jesus wants me to do, and he's making my life so awful. I'm not complaining. He's, he's articulating this gratitude and praise, and yet complaining is such an easy thing to do, is it not? How many of you are like me? Like, you're, you're pretty good at complaining. <laughs> like, it just kind of rolls off your tongue so effortlessly. Like you don't even realize you're doing it. You just, so, so, it's just, complaining is such an easy thing to do. To have a spirit of it, complain about this, complain about that. And, and here the Apostle Paul, even in prison, all he wants to do is just talk about how awesome Jesus is. And everything that Jesus accomplishes and all that he makes available, he's just focusing on Jesus. He's frequently articulating gratitude and praise. Can I encourage you this? Man, we need to regularly, regularly be 
allowing our hearts to be so fixed on Jesus that it overflows in gratitude and it overflows in praise. Don't wait for everything to go the way you want to articulate thanksgiving. It might even be more important that you articulate thanksgiving and praise when everything in your life's falling apart. That's why the Bible still says, in everything, give thanks. Whoa. Now, I say this, and I've said this before. It does not say, for everything, give thanks. There are some things in your life you can't be thankful for. I mean, it's just wicked, horrible, awful, and wrong. It doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. It says this, in everything, give thanks. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your circumstances, even if you find yourself, like Paul, as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, in every situation, there's always something to be grateful and thankful for. And so here we see the Apostle Paul, he's giving us the foundation for our gratitude. He's giving us the foundation for our praise. And the foundation for gratitude and praise is not better situation in life, is not a better circumstances, is not a better spouse or a bigger house or a nicer car or more money. The foundation for our gratitude is the person of Jesus Christ. All that he is and all that he is for us is the foundation from which our soul can spring forth in praise and in gratitude and in thanksgiving. You see, why is this so important? Because when things in your life are going bad, and yet you can still praise God, not like, I'm not just talking about faking it. I'm talking about there's something deep within you. You're so fixed on Jesus, even when in this earthly realm things are going bad, you truly have a heart of gratitude and praise. What that gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving produces is joy. Because like we said at the beginning of the message, it's not that happy people are thankful. I know, I know a lot of people whose lives are, man, they're great but they're not very thankful. They're not filled with gratitude. Why? Because happiness doesn't produce gratitude. Rather, gratitude, regardless of what you're going to, produces happiness. And that's what Paul is infusing and helping us understand. You see, even if you feel like you don't have something to be thankful for, you always have someone to be thankful to. Let's fix our eyes on him. So as we've been saying in this series, Jesus Christ really is enough. Last week we saw that he was enough for our growth. We can fix our hearts on him and we can abide with him and he can grow us and develop us and help us to become everything that he designed for us to be. But as we're going to see, as we see today, not only is he enough for our growth, but he is also enough for our gratitude. And if you're a a lady here, and you're like, man, my life hasn't turned out the way I thought it was going to turn out. I want to say that in Jesus, in Jesus, there's enough for your heart to be filled with gratitude. And if you're a guy here today, and you're like, my career didn't go the way I thought it would go, or my business hasn't gone out what I thought it would accomplish, and my health hasn't turned out how I hoped it would, I want to say this, that Jesus is enough that there is enough in the character and the essence of all that Jesus is that will allow your heart to spring forth in praise and thanksgiving to him that will ultimately cultivate a joy unspeakable and full of glory even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that is the hope that we have in the Spirit of God. So here's our takeaway today. It's simply this. When you lose your gratitude in life, look for it in Christ. When you lose your gratitude in life, look for it in Christ. You say, but I want to look for it in more money. (laughs) 
I want to look forward in a bigger house. I want to look forward in a different spouse. Can I say this? When you lose your gratitude in life, look for it first in Christ, in his finished work, and all that he's made available to you in the Spirit. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.